want to uh, talk to you a bit in these sessions together about kingdom, about Jesus and the kingdom. If you have your Bibles, I will base that upon two texts of Scripture. First of all, John chapter 3 and verse 5, which you all know, the famous passage about Nicodemus and being born again. But it also mentions the kingdom. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and uh, verse 3, Truly I say to you, he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. And in verse 3, he says, unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom. And then Mark's Gospel tells us how Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. And it says in Mark 1, 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that's the, the theme that I want to uh, share with you a little bit. It's a big, it's a big topic. It's the whole gospel looks at from one angle. So it's a very big topic. But um, just a, a few bits from the surface, of, as it were, in connection with the kingdom of God. It's part of what I'm doing a lot in connection with Jesus. Last time I was here in March, I was speaking, on the, speaking under the heading of the real Jesus. And really, this is the same theme. I'm still pursuing the, the topic of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he spent his time and what he did and so on. If you ask the question, how did Jesus spend his time? What, what, what sort of thing did Jesus do day by day? What were his regular activities? I think the answer is that, that, that four big things stand out. He obviously spent a lot of time preaching. He's, the preaching is, uh, is uh, conspicuous in the stories of the Gospels. Different types of preaching. I'm interested in the question... How much did Jesus prepare his preaching? How, 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 uh, how much time did Jesus spend preparing his preaching? Never, see, never hear about Jesus sitting in his study preparing a sermon. I mean, you don't get that sort of thing in the Gospels, do you? Uh, did he ever prepare any sermons? Were all of his, was all of his preaching spontaneous? A, a lot of it was. Remember, uh, on one occasion he was speaking and a man shouts out from the crowd, uh, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus, I don't know what you would have done if you'd been preaching and somebody shouted out, I think he'd have said, deacons, get, get, get rid of that guy. But, uh, but Jesus just swung on him and said, oh, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And for the next two chapters in Luke's Gospel, it's all about money. In other words, he just picks up what the man is talking about and immediately uses it to, um, to, to steer where he's preaching. And the parable of the rich fool, many famous parables come in at that point. It was entirely spontaneous. The man just shouts out from the crowd. And for the next hour or so, Jesus is, is dealing with what's just happened. And I think a lot of Jesus' preaching was like that. Is there any evidence that anything was not like that? Was there, any, was there anything, any evidence in Scripture that he prepared a message and then stood up and uh, gave it? Is there anything like that in the Gospels? Maybe, may, maybe the Sermon on the Mount was prepared in advance uh, it's a highly uh, structured sermon. But uh, a lot of his preaching was very spontaneous. And a lot of his preaching was in response to questions, often hostile questions. They would come and they would say, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? They were just trying to get him into trouble. Oh, which is the first, great, first and great commandment? Uh, questions about divorce. Questions about resurrection. They would throw these questions at him, trying to get him into trouble. But Jesus never turned down the question, did he? You never find Jesus saying, oh, no, no, some other time. No matter what they throw at him, he always just takes it. No matter how it's never sincere that these questions are coming to Jesus. They're not sincere. But uh, whether they're sincere or not, he uses them, he makes use of the situation and answers it and he always avoids getting into trouble. When they try and get him into trouble, they never catch him. And finally, remember it says in one of the Gospels, from that point on, they never dared ask him another question. They, they stopped altogether. And then he asked them a question. David, who, who, whose son is he? 
when, he, when they ask him questions, they're questions about law. When he asks them a question, it's a question about himself. Who, who do you think I am? Who do you think the Son of Man is? So all of those things come in the style of Jesus' preaching. And then even his speaking to individuals. It's not much different from his preaching when he's talking to Nicodemus or the rich young ruler or the woman of Samaria. It's really the same as his preaching. It's no difference in style. He's just preaching to one. It's really still the same thing. So Jesus spent a lot of time doing that. He spent a lot of time in his miracles. Often the scriptures will say that he went into a town and they bring the whole sick, the whole sick people of Capernaum or some village, and he'll say he healed them all. Sometimes he'll banish sickness from a town. There'll be nobody sick in the whole town after Jesus has been there. And uh, he could stop a funeral as, as the funeral procession is going along. He stops it, raises the dead, and carries on. I mean, he was an amazing man of miracles. 38 of them are described in detail. But apart from the 38 miracles described in detail, um, Jesus obviously was, do, was doing miracles all of the time. And then something that might surprise you, you, you may not have thought about this, Jesus spent a lot of time having meals with people. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels? There really are a lot of times when Jesus has a meal with somebody. Sometimes they ask him to, to a meal, and he says, yeah, I'll come. And they're obviously open meals and public meals. All sorts of people are coming in. And remember the woman who comes and anoints, anoints him with oil? She, she walks in. They're obviously very open house situations. Sometimes people ask him, and he always says yes, and he shocks people by the kind of people that he has meals with. He never has a meal with Pontius Pilate, he doesn't go out for, for lunch with, with Caiaphas, he, he's not going out with the elites of society. He goes out with the worst people, he hangs out with the worst people he can find. And they say, well, this guy, you know, he, he eats with drunkards and harlots, and they're, they're shocked, they're scandalized at the people he spends his time with. And then sometimes he, uh, he invites himself. Have you ever noticed uh, Zacchaeus, he's up a tree trying to see Jesus because he's a short guy. And Jesus says, hey, hi, hi, Zacchaeus, come, come down. I'm coming to your house for supper tonight. I mean, sometimes he invites himself. And he spends time, a lot of time, having meals with people. Well, you can think about that. I'm not preaching on that at the moment, but you can think about it. So Jesus spends time with meals and miracles and messages. And it's also obvious that he spends a lot of time in prayer. You can find times when Jesus will pray all night or they'll get up early in the morning and they can't find him. And they say, where's Jesus gone? And they search for him until they find him. And it will say, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, he went out into a lonely place, a deserted place, and there he prayed. He obviously disappeared sometimes and spent times in prayer. Sometimes he would say, you you cross the lake, on your own, I'm going to walk around the hills. And he was obviously praying for them, watching them, seeing them from up in the hills, and went praying for them. And when they're in trouble, he would come and walk across the water to rescue them in their trouble. He would be spending a lot of time praying, praying for his people, praying for his work, praying for his ministry, praying for the kingdom in, uh, in what he was doing. But I'm concerned about his preaching. I've got to the point where I'm thinking about his preaching. And... As I say, there's different types of preaching, and you might uh, ask the question, where did he preach? And the answer is, well, he began his preaching in the synagogues. Remember, as um, the story gets going of, of his transferring his base to Galilee, he begins by preaching in the synagogue. And it goes on that way for a little while, not very long. You've only got to, to Mark chapter 3 and verse uh, 6, I think it is when his preaching is getting him into trouble, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, how to kill him. So his preaching in, the, his, uh, preaching in official buildings didn't last very long, almost immediately, within one evangelistic tour. His life is in danger. From that point on, he can't preach in synagogues anymore. He's no longer preaching in official buildings. So he preaches anywhere. He can preach upon the beach. He can stand in a boat and preach to the crowds upon the beach. He can be up on some hillside, the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is a, a, a level area up in the hill country. He can preach anywhere, in a home, upon the hillside, in the open air, by the sea, by, by the Lake of Galilee. 
Those are the places where he preaches. And then you might want to ask the question, what did he preach? What was the theme of his preaching? And, uh, or you might like to begin with the same question put negatively. What did he not preach about? He never preached about uh, politics. He never said, you know, I'm coming to support uh, an anti-Roman crusade. He never preached about politics. He never preached about social issues. He never said, you know, biggest problem in Israel is slavery. Let, let's, let's hold a campaign and see if we can uh, abolish slavery or let's, let's see if we can get rid of these Romans. He never preached directly on social issues. I'm not saying that his preaching didn't have social implications, because I think it did. But he didn't preach on, on social things directly. He didn't get involved in the nitty-gritty of reforming society. You might like to ask the question, why is that? Why, why did he not preach on these things? He didn't preach upon, upon current affairs. He never refers to what's going on in government, or what's in the daily newspaper, or whatever's the, whatever was the ancient equivalent of daily newspapers. He doesn't do anything like that. What does he preach upon? Well, he preaches about himself a lot. He's the only person in the history of the world who's entitled to preach about himself. He'll say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He preaches a lot about himself. He's the only person in the history of the world who's allowed, as it were, to be preaching about himself. He is the Savior. No, no pastor or preacher could say, what Jesus could say. Imagine your pastor stands up and he says, whatever your problem is, come unto me and I will give you rest. I mean, you'd think that was a bit of a, uh, he has a bit of a super ego. But, um, but Jesus could do that. Jesus is the only person that could do that. He himself is the answer to the world and its problems. So he preaches a lot about himself. But then the main theme of his, if you want to summarize it in, in one word, the main theme of his preaching is the kingdom. And that's, that's where I've got to, and that's why I'm looking at this theme this morning. So when the Bible summarizes in one sentence what Jesus preached about, it uses the word kingdom. He came into Galilee, says Mark 1, 14, 15. John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is here, right? He's coming right now. He's at hand. He's very close to you. The kingdom of God is at hand. Respond to it. Believe. Repent. Turn from your sins. Believe in the gospel. He preaches the kingdom, if you want to put it in one word. And uh, the same thing in John chapter 3, verse 5. And remember the story of Jesus. One of the things I've been trying to do recently is to convince people that there is such a thing as the story of Jesus. Uh, for various reasons, not many people have much idea of the story of Jesus. Uh, there's a reason for that. It has a lot to do with um, attacks upon the gospel over the last few centuries. The scholarly world over the last few centuries have very much attacked the gospels. And uh, the idea is around that really you can't tell the story of Jesus. And even, even Bible-believing Christians don't really uh, have much idea that, that you can tell the story of Jesus. And if you read commentaries and uh, expositions of the Gospels, even, even by Bible-believing people, people that believe the uh, Scriptures, and they're, and they're good, saved, evangelical people, you'll find them saying, well, the Gospels are not really in chronological order. We can't really tell the actual story of Jesus. Actually, that's not true. If you really uh, study the Gospels, you'll find there is a story of Jesus there. And the four Gospels are telling one story from different angles. The four Gospels are telling one story. And uh, the fact of the matter is, if you believe the Scriptures... Uh, many people, of course, read the Scriptures and study them, but without really believing them. And even Christians who do believe in the Scriptures are intimidated and affected by, by unbelieving, destructive scholarship. But if you, believe, if you read the Gospels just believing what's there, you'll find that Mark's Gospel really is claiming to be in chronological order. It'll say Jesus went to this uh, synagogue, and then this happens, and the next day and early in the morning, then they begin to look for him. It, it's all in chronological sequence. And Luke's in chronological sequence because he's following the same sequence as Mark. If Mark's in order, so is Luke, because he's following the same order. 
John is in chronological order because it's telling you the story of the festivals. This was the first Passover, and then after the Passover was this, and then Jesus goes to Jerusalem. After John's arrested, he goes to Galilee. He's telling the story in sequence. Three of the four Gospels are telling the story in sequence. And it's not very difficult to put that, those, those three Gospels together and see what the story of Jesus is. It's Matthew's Gospel that, that causes a bit of confusion, because Matthew does not always tell the story in sequence. He, he goes through the story more, certainly in the, in the middle of the Gospel, he goes through the Gospels more in, in topical order. He'll say Jesus did miracles, and he was a preacher, and this is a sample of his preaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and here's ten, ten miracles. Those miracles come from all over the place, but they're all in two chapters. He's going through the thing topically, subject by subject. So when you're looking for the story of Jesus, you read the other three, not Matthew. You put Matthew in afterwards and then fit out your story with Matthew. The story goes like this. It's it's quite a straightforward story, although we haven't got time to go into all the the details. But uh, Luke and Matthew tell of the story of Jesus' beginnings and his birth and what we call the Christmas stories and so on. And then the Gospels tell the story of how Jesus' ministry began, various things had to happen. He was baptized, he received the Holy Spirit, there was the ministry of John the Baptist, there was the temptation, various uh, preliminaries. And then he goes and he presents himself to Jerusalem. Before, before Jesus goes to Galilee, he spends about three, somewhere three, four, five, six months in Jerusalem. And uh, he, be- he doesn't begin in Galilee, he begins in Jerusalem. And it's John's Gospel that tells us that story. And he presents himself to the government. I don't know whether you've ever realized that. When, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he's coming as a representative of the government. He comes and he says, we know. Who's the we? And with the we, he's, he's a member of the parliament. He's, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And he comes and says, we know. We know that you're a teacher. Come from God. This is the government. This is the parliament coming to say, well, we've been watching you and your miracles. You're obviously a, a good guy. Maybe, maybe you can help us uh, bring in the kingdom and get rid of these Romans and the, the kingdom will come to Israel. We know that you're a teacher, come from God. And he's about to ask some question. And Jesus does not let him get to his question. He steps in and he says, Nicodemus, unless you, and the word you is plural. The, the Greek word for you there is plural. Unless all you guys up in the Sanhedrin, unless you, you, plural, are born again, you're never going to see this kingdom that you want. He's addressing, he's telling the government what they need to know if the kingdom of God is to come to Israel. The government leaders need to be born again. Unless you people, plural, are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. I think we don't always read uh, the story of Nicodemus in that way, but remember those words are plural, and, and uh, Nicodemus is coming saying, we, we, we people know about you. So there's a short period where Jesus is, as it were, presenting himself to Jerusalem, the capital city. And he's talking about the kingdom to them. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom. It's the kingdom that he mentions to Nicodemus. Unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. It's the kingdom that he's presenting to the Jerusalem authorities. But uh, that period of popularity does not last very long, not not more than a few months. And uh, Jesus is working very closely with John the Baptist. And John is preaching about the kingdom and repentance. He gets into trouble. He's put into prison. And uh, he's about to lose his life. And Jesus is going to lose his life any moment now. Things are hotting up against John and Jesus who are working together. And so at that point, Jesus transfers his ministry. He gets out of Judea and Jerusalem, goes through Samaria. Biggest success he ever had was going through Samaria. The whole revival on his way in Samaria. And he goes to Galilee, far up in the north. Fulfilling prophecy. The the old prophecies said, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. People who are sitting in darkness is Galilee. These, These guys at the top of the extreme north of uh, of what we sometimes call the Holy Land. I don't know, it's very holy really, but uh, the extreme north of that, of that Palestinian Holy Land or whatever you want to call it. 
is Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee where there's so many Gentile people, people of mixed origin and Samaritans in between. The, the most darkest place in the, the whole of Israel. The prophecy always said that's where Jesus would do his work. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And so he went up, and they, there was a saying, there was a saying around there, can anything good come out of Galilee? I mean, it was the most despised place. So Jesus sets up his ministry there, and he makes it his headquarters. But once again, just as in Jerusalem, he had been preaching the kingdom to Nicodemus, the government official, so also in Galilee, his theme is the kingdom. So when John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus is in danger, he escapes. He doesn't, he doesn't want to die before his time. He's going to die one day, but not yet. And when people would come to try to kill him, he would say, my hour is not yet come. It's not the appointed time for him to die upon the cross. And he's protecting his life until the appointed time should come. So he withdraws and uh, he goes to Galilee. And his theme of preaching, the theme of his preaching is the kingdom. So that's the background of where I'm coming from. I'm taking my time because my theme is not just Jesus, is not just the kingdom. My theme is Jesus. He is a preacher. He does his miracles. We thought a bit, a bit about the miracles last time I was here. He has meals with people. He prays a lot. That's how he spends his time. But the theme of his preaching is the theme of the kingdom. So then the first thing I want you to notice about it is that it's, that it's not a new theme. It's not that Jesus is preaching something that nobody knows anything about. He's, he's talking to them as if they already know about the kingdom. He comes and he says the time is fulfilled. In other words, you know about this. You, you've been expecting this. You've been, you've been saying to yourself, well, when is the time going to come? When God's kingdom will come? Well, it's now, says Jesus, the time is now. The kingdom's about to begin now. In other words, the implication is that they already know about this, that they are expecting something to be happening. And uh, the great question they're asking is, well, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And so the implication is that this is not a new message. It's, uh, the, only, the only thing that's new is that the time for it to, to, to be taking place has come. That's the only thing that's new. Everything else has already been announced and predicted and foretold. But uh, now Jesus comes and his point is, ah, this kingdom that you know about and that you're sort of expecting, it, it's here, it's coming now. So it was not an old, it was not a new message, it was an old message. And the Old Testament is full of references to, to God's kingdom. The Old Testament is constantly saying that God is a king. The book of Psalms and the prophets, they're constantly saying that God is king. Psalm, Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, the Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Everybody who read the Old Testament could see that it's constantly claiming that God is king. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. He let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned. He sits upon a throne in the Holy of Holies. There his glory is shining out in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle of the temple. He sits enthroned, ruling the universe. The heaven is his throne and the tabernacle and temple are just a kind of a model of heaven down on earth. And he sits there as a king, ruling and reigning. So the Old Testament always had the idea that God has, is a king, that, that his, this whole world is his kingdom, he's ruling and reigning over it. It was an Old Testament theme. And it was especially the theme of the book of Daniel. If you read um, the book of Daniel, the great theme of the book of Daniel is, is kingship and kingdom. And the great question that the book of Daniel is asking is, is God still a king when Israel is, is trampled down and being ruled by Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans? All these empires are trampling upon, upon the people of God, Israel. So is God still the king? And uh, can, can, can you survive when you're in a kind of pagan empire? And so Daniel is a civil servant in the Babylonian Empire. He's, under a, he's in a pagan kingdom. 
And the great question is, can, can the people of God survive when the kingdom that's ruling is pagan? And the story is that Daniel did survive. Remember the story? And not only did Daniel survive, he, he did quite well. He uh, survived and uh, was a good testimony to the kingdom of God and to the Babylonians. And he ha- he's a man who has a gift of these, these visions and dreams. And the visions and dreams of Daniel are all about the kingdom. And if you remember the story of Daniel, the great, uh, what, what Daniel does is he predicts that uh, this, this time when the people of God are under pagan empires is going to go on for a long time. And there are going to be four of them. Daniel's constantly telling us there's going to be four great kingdoms. They're going to be under the Babylonians. And then the Babylonian empire is going to end and they're going to be under the Persians. And then the Persian Empire is going to end and they're going to be under the Greeks. And those three names are mentioned in Daniel. The actual names are there. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. They're they're explicitly mentioned. And then there's going to be another one. And the other one's not given a name. Turns out to be the Romans. But uh, Rome did not exist very much in the 6th century. It did, but there was no great empire there. The Persians were around, the Greeks were around, the Babylonians were around. You can talk about them because they're there. Romans, they'd hardly come upon the scene. But uh, Daniel says, well, there's going to be four great kingdoms. And uh, he pictures them in terms of beasts or animals coming from the sea. Remember Daniel chapter 7? These beasts arise out from the sea. The sea is always a picture of chaos and restlessness. There is no peace for the wicked, said Isaiah. There's no peace for the wicked. They're like the tossing of the sea. The sea is always a picture of restlessness and sin and uh, it splashes upon the, on the ground, trying as it were to uh, attack the ground and the sea goes back and it comes and has another go. It's always bashing upon the land, trying to overtake it, never succeeding. The sea is always a picture of restlessness. That's why Revelation says there's no sea in heaven. But um, and out of the sea, out of the sea comes these beasts. One's like a lion, one's like a leopard, one's like a panther. I can't remember all the details. And then there comes another one, a fourth one. And that's not like anything. That's a kind of indescribable mixture of all sorts of horrible creatures. And all these beasts come from the sea. And that's going to be the Romans. Then Daniel says, in the time of the fourth kingdom, God will set up his kingdom. And it won't be a beast arising from the sea. It'll be one who's like the Son of Man. Not coming from the sea, but coming from heaven. Riding upon the clouds of heaven. So you see, the the prophecies were always there. That that all these empires would come and they'd always be, be attacking the people of God. And you think the kingdom of God is being defeated and crushed and that God's people are going to be wiped out. I think we're rather in that situation. Many people are sort of worried all over the world about Muslim invasions and is, is the, are we in a post-Christian epoch? Are the, are the people of God going to be wiped out? Well, kingdoms come and go. Earthly kingdoms come and go. But earthly kingdoms actually, though they seem to be so powerful and they seem to be trampling upon the kingdom of God, actually they don't trample upon the people of God, they, they actually help the kingdom of God. This is the best place in the world to be saying that, St. Albans. This is the best place in the world. The place where the first Christian was killed in Britain. Yes, yes, packed full of churches. Isn't that nice? You see, the, the very person, the, the very Mr. Mr. Alban who died for the faith here in St. Albans. Yeah, but it, it made the whole world look at Verulamium, as they used to call it. And uh, churches began here. Everybody heard about this guy who'd been killed for Jesus. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the devil, did not hinder the kingdom of God. It helps the kingdom of God. Now, now there's a place called St. Albans, back, back full of churches. No, no. The, the oppression of the world does not hinder the kingdom of God. It actually helps the kingdom of God. The Greeks conquered the world and they spread their, their language all over the world. And the New Testament was written in Greek. Or just went everywhere speaking one language. The Babylonians scattered Jews all over the, the, the Mediterranean world. And when the gospel began, there were people all over the world who, who, knew the, who had a Bible in, in Greek. Those empires didn't hinder the gospel, they helped the gospel. God, the Babylonians put Jews everywhere. 
The Greeks put the Greek language everywhere. The Romans built roads everywhere. They built it to, 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 to uh, move their armies around fast. But those roads that they, they built for their soldiers, Paul walked along them to preach the gospel. And there's one thing about him that makes me so jealous. He never had to get a visa. <laughs> I mean, the, Rom- the, Romans, the Romans ruled the whole place. He never crossed the border. The, those, the, the gospel went out so fast. There were, there were Christians in Rome. Within six weeks of the day of Pentecost, there were Christians in Rome. And then no one had to learn the language. No one had to cross the border. No one had to get a visa. Those, those empires didn't hinder the gospel. They opened up the way for the gospel. And the world's always gone along that way. British went into Africa, set up a kingdom upon whom the sun would never set. Unfortunately, the sun has set these days, but, um, but they left their language behind. They left English behind. And you go every, anywhere in, in, in the whole of Africa and preach in English, you, never, you don't really have to learn a language. Because the colonial empire left, a, left behind a language to preach the gospel. The, the, the kingdoms of, of the world do not hinder the gospel. Jesus is the head He's the king, he's the head over all things for his body, the church, says the Bible. And even as we're in strange things happening in the world at the moment, everybody's in the wrong place. England's packed with South Africans, if you've noticed, and uh, Muslims are invading, and, and, and the best place to preach the gospel sometimes is Qatar and Kuwait and Dubai, where all these Muslims are. One of the best places in the world to preach the gospel. Never been there? 80% are not Muslims, 80% are foreigners working and no one cares what you preach to them. Best place in the world to preach the gospel. Everyone's, everyone's in the wrong place at the moment. And everyone's getting, as it, people who are getting saved are, are out of position. When you're in a strange country, you start, start thinking about life and what, what you believe in, and it opens you up. I wonder why all these Muslims are invading the Western world. I reckon it's so that we can reach them. We can never reach them in, in, in Saudi Arabia, now, now, the next door. It's cheaper on airfares. I mean, they're, they're, they're next door now. You don't need to be a missionary in Qatar or, or, or Mecca. They're next door. Don't you tell me God's not in control. This is God. This is God moving his world around for the sake of his kingdom. The easiest place in the world to reach Muslims are Britain, Nairobi, and Cape Town, in my opinion. These are the very places where we come from. These are the easiest places in the world to reach Muslims. You see, this is, this is the message of the kingdom. When Jesus comes along saying, well, the kingdom's here, it's coming right now, it, it's an old, old message. Daniel's always had been preaching about it. And even when Jesus is born, wise men from the east come. Remember the Christmas story? Wise men from the east come saying, where is he who's to be born king? Of the, where did those guys get that message from? How comes these guys from Persia or Babylon or somewhere from the east come seeking Israel's king in Jerusalem? Well, you remember Daniel was a wise man. Daniel was one of the wise men of the east in the Babylonian court, in the Persian court. And uh, Daniel was obviously famous among wise men of the east, of Babylon and Persia, those capital cities. And so these guys studying the stars, they see some new star appearing, they say, oh, that's it, that's what Daniel told us about. And they come seeking. They're seeking the kingdom. Daniel had prepared the way for them. And they ask the question, where's the one who's been born king? And so the theme of um, Jesus is, is picking up from the Old Testament, saying, it's here, it's coming now. And uh, so the kingdom was an old, old message. Then now let me tell you about, the, very hurriedly, let me tell you about the, the Old Testament uh, picture of the kingdom. Number one, it's picturing God as king, ruling over the whole world. He has a special kingdom in Israel, and he appoints his king, his, his king in the line of David, is his king. He's, he's got a son of David, somebody in David's line. So he's the king, but he appoints someone to be a king on his behalf. There's, there's a, a son of God. There's a son of, of the Father, who's there appointed as king in Israel. So Jesus, so, so God is king, but he appoints a, a human king to be his representative. And uh, the Old Testament is constantly talking about the Lord reigns, the Lord is the king. It's a kingdom of righteousness, un, unlike, unlike all earthly kingdoms which are tyrannical and wicked and oppressive and colonial and ambitious and money-minded. Unlike all these kingdoms of the earth, 
this is a kingdom of righteousness, righteousness and peace, which is a strange combination. Righteousness and peace is a strange combination. Normally when you're righteous, there's not much peace. And normally when you want peace, there's not much righteousness. You have peace at any price. You do anything just for the sake of peace. Peace and righteousness don't go together very well. Righteousness throws out peace and peace throws out righteousness. They, they don't really belong together. This one comes, he's a king of righteousness, he's a king of peace. He's Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and he's the king Yerushalom. He's the king of Salem, the place of peace. He's king of righteousness and peace at the same time. And so he comes with this, God speaks about this kingdom of righteousness and peace which is coming. It's a kingdom of judgment, it puts down sin. It, 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 it will punish and exterminate and, gets rid of, and get rid of sin altogether. It, it annihilates sin and wickedness. It's a sin where God saves a people for himself. He can, it's, a, it's a kingdom where God saves a people for himself. He comes and he takes a people and says, these are my people, I'll, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. It's a kingdom where God saves his people. It's a kingdom that is messianic. He sends a messiah. And remember the meaning of that, of that word, the, the Hebrew word, Mashiach, it means anointed. It's a kingdom where God, put in the old, in the symbolism of the ancient world, where God pours out anointing oil upon him. And that's a picture of, of what? Of, of lubrication. We use oil, we still use oil today, don't we? To lubricate. You put oil in your car, you put oil in your bicycle, you put oil in your sewing machine, and what does it do? It, it lubricates, it gets the things flowing and moving. Oil lubricates, you even put oil upon yourself. You anoint your head, you put in cream upon yourself. You, it makes you feel comfortable and uh, flowing easily. Oil is famous for lubricating and producing ease and flow and movement. And so they anointed people in the ancient world. They anointed priests and prophets and kings. So it's three types of people that they poured oil upon. We still do it in the English coronation service. When, when Charles becomes king, if he ever does, he'll have oil poured all over him. We'll anoint him in Westminster Abbey or something. We still use anointing oil. So the Hebrew word for that is Mashiach or Messiah. The Greek word for that is Christos or Christ. It's the same word in, in two different languages. And the English word is anointed. There's going to some, come someone who is a Mashiach, who's a Messiah. There's going to, going to come someone who's a Christos, who's a Christ, who's anointed. There's going to come someone who's a prophet and a priest and a king with the power of God's Spirit upon him. A Christ, an anointed Messiah, is going to come. That was always the prediction of the Old Testament. This king, will be, no, he won't only be a king, he'll be a priest, he'll atone for sins, he'll be a great prophet, he'll bring the word of God. His prophet, priest, and king, anointed, the Christos, the anointed one, is about to come. He's going to be born of a virgin. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll ride into Jerusalem as, as a great king, only he'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, that's a weird sort of thing to do. In the ancient world, when you were a king and you conquered some empire, you got some majestic stallion. You, you got some white Arabian horse, brilliantly white, and you rode upon this mighty stallion, and you brought in your army, your army came in with you, and you rode as the conqueror upon this mighty white stallion with your armies coming in. Jesus did the same thing, only it wasn't a white stallion, it was a donkey. And uh, the army that came with him were just pilgrims from Galilee and children throwing palms upon the road, crying out, Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. He rides in as a king to Jerusalem, but not with an army, not upon a white stallion, but with children singing his praises and Galilean pilgrims who were totally despised and the Pharisees saying, what's going on here? Why are these children, why are these children singing to you? And he rides in upon a donkey. It's his way of saying that this kingdom... He's not going to come into the world by majestic military power. That's, that's what they wanted. They, want, they wanted some great soldier to come in and throw out the Romans. That's what they wanted. They wanted some uh, great soldier to come and deliver them from the colonial regime of the Romans. But no, this kingdom is, is going to be different. And so Jesus rides in upon a donkey. And those who are his mighty army are children singing his praises and despise people from Galilee. 
It's that kind of kingdom. It's not a, a military kingdom. It's a humble kingdom. And so the reason why the kingdom of God is coming is because Jesus is the king. Where the king is, there is the kingdom. The reason why Jesus can say the kingdom of God is at hand is because he's coming. He's the king. And where the king is, there is the kingdom. Where Jesus is, is, come, is present, where Jesus is, is working, that's, that's, that's the kingdom. That is the kingdom. The kingdom is there in the presence of the king. There's no kingdom without the king. Where the king is there, you've got the kingdom. So Jesus can say, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, if I come and I cast out Beelzebub and I get rid of all these wicked powers, then the kingdom of God has come among you. He is the kingdom. The kingdom is in him. He's the king. And so he comes as the king. And then there's something else that um, you need to notice. In the old, I'm still in the Old Testament. And that is that the kingdom is earthly. The kingdom's a very earthly kingdom. You might think uh, that the kingdom of God is spiritual, that it's, that it's a prayer and it's angels praising God and it's like sort of heaven. But now, in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God is very, very earthly. It's, uh, it's, it's sinners being put down and, and got rid of. It's the saints, it's the people of God being given power upon planet earth. Not power in heaven, power on earth. It's actually paradise coming back. It's the Garden of Eden being brought back again. Remember the, the various prophecies of the Old Testament prophets? It's, uh, it's nature flourishing. It's a new heavens and a new earth, uh, Isaiah, in which righteousness dwells. It's, it's paradise restored on planet earth. Very earthly kingdom. Not a spiritual thing. It's not. It's not Platonic. If you know anything about Plato, it's, it's not. It's not some sort of a wonderful things happening in the heavenly realm. It, it's happening right down here. It's very earthly in the Old Testament. It's very visible. It's sin putting. Ob it's sin being obviously, visibly, conspicuously put down, and the saints and the righteous being exalted and lifted up on high. So I'm still dealing with the Old Testament. So it's a very visible, earthly kingdom. But then the next thing I need to say to you, and this is very important, this is something you really must uh, get hold of. In the Old Testament, the, the picture of this kingdom, which is always being predicted and prophesied, I, the word I like to use is this. It is a very panoramic um, Picture. Now, now, do you know what I mean by something being a panorama? A panorama is when you're in some high position and you see everything all in one go. Imagine that you're on the, the Eiffel Tower in Paris and you can see the whole city. Imagine you're on top of the Hillbrow Tower in, in Johannesburg and you can see everything. You can see all the way to Pretoria. You can see the entire city or you're in the Kenyatta International Conference Center in Nairobi, or you're in some revolving restaurant, and you see everything. You see a panorama. You see the entire view of everything that's, that's down there. Now, Old Testament prophecy is like that. When you, you have these predictions and prophecies of the coming kingdom of God, it is a panoramic. I can't think of a better word than that. It is a panoramic description. It is a description of everything that God is going to do with no kind of uh, divisions, of, of uh, no, no list of events, anything like that. You're just seeing everything that God is going to do all in one view, all in one scene and vision. Let me, let me try to clarify that to you, because this is very important. Imagine, let, let me put it to you like this, imagine a man, a father, talking to his son. And uh, let's say he has a little son, about 10 years old, let's say. And he's chatting to his son. And he, so he says to his son, well, you know, you've got the whole of life ahead of you. And uh, God's going to really bless you. We're a Christian family. We're praying for you. We really think God's going to work in your life. And one day you're going to go to university. And you'll, you know, you're a few years' time, you'll be in university. And uh, God will bless you. One day you'll get married and God will give you a good wife. And God will give you a calling, you'll have a purpose for your life, and one day God will just show you what your calling in life is. 
Mind you, mind you, life is tough. You'll, you'll go through sufferings. You'll have some problems and sufferings are there. You, you have to work through a few things. Life is like that. And you'll get, you'll get old. One day you'll die. When you die, you'll go to heaven. Believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven. And so this, this, this father is chatting to his son, talking about all, all the things that's, that maybe is going to happen to him in his life. You go to university, you'll get married. You've got to provide, meet your needs. You'll have a calling. One day you'll die and go to heaven. He's chatting about the, the future of life for his, for his little boy. And so the little boy said to his dad, well, well when's this going to happen? You know, when, you know, when, when am I going to get this wife you're talking about? Oh, says the dad, no, I, don't, I can't tell you that. All I know is it's going to happen, but, but, but I'm not, I can't give you the date. I can't tell you the time it's going to happen. Oh, says the little boy, I said, well, when, am I, when am I going to die? How long am I going to live? When, how, when's this day when I'm going to, going to come and die and go to heaven? Well, no, I, I can't tell you that either. It's going to happen to you one day, but uh, I can't tell you when. You say, that's up to God. Now, do you see what's happening there? The father can, as it were, describe everything that's ahead for that little boy of his. But he can't sort of give the dates. He can't say, no, it'll be, it'll be sort of the year 2022. 20, he can't give a date. He doesn't know what's going to happen in detail. He can't even give the sequence. You know, go through suffering, you'll get married, you go to university. I don't know whether, which one, which one will come first. You, you might suffer when you're a teenager. You might be years later, you go through some real, I can't, I can't give you the details. I can't work out a kind of chronology of your life. All I can, t- all I can give you is the overview. All I can give you is the panorama. All I can do is give you the total picture. Now that's the way Old Testament, that's my illustration of how Old Testament prophecy works. We're told that the Savior is going to come. We're told that, he, that he'll suffer. That the Lord will lay upon him the iniquity of us all. That he'll pour out his soul under death. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be born of a virgin. He'll, he'll ride in, in, upon a donkey into Jerusalem. One day he'll come riding upon the clouds of heaven and all the world will worship him and honor him. He'll be, he'll, he'll be, he'll be glorified and the whole universe will be praising him. There's this grand total picture of all that the Messiah is going to do. But there's no chronology there. There's no sequence of events. There's no difference, have you ever thought about this? There's no difference in the Old Testament between the first coming and the second coming. No Old Testament saints could ever have told you that Jesus would come twice. There's no division between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, that's, that's why people didn't always know how to, how to cope with Jesus, because... Uh, expecting a saviour that comes riding upon the clouds of heaven. They're not expecting someone to go to a cross and be crucified. They're expecting some majestic, glorious kingdom. When we read the prophecies of the Bible, we always like the nice ones more than we do the tough ones. And predictions of suffering and of trouble and difficulty, we don't like those ones. It's the nice ones we like. Glory and honour, righteousness, victory, those are the bits we like. It's the same when Jesus came the first time. When Jesus came the first time, People didn't, didn't read Isaiah 53. They didn't read about pouring out his soul unto death. They didn't read Psalm 22, hanging upon a cross and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those, those were not the bits they liked. The bits they liked were uh, the pictures of glory and triumph and victory. That was John the Baptist's problem. You see, John the Baptist, remember, was... Uh, he was an Old Testament prophet. Although we read about him in the New Testament, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And uh, there's no division in his preaching between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. He, say, he says, this, this is he, he's the one who's going to come. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll come and bring salvation. He'll come and bring judgment. He, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. He'll bring the fire of God's judgment. He is the Savior of the Old Testament. That's, that's John's message. And a few days later, a few, a few weeks and months later, John is in prison, and he's about to lose his life. And you remember Matthew chapter 11, remember he sends a message to Jesus. Are are you the one who's to come, or should we look for another? You know, did I get this wrong? You know, I I, I thought you were the Savior. I thought you were the one who is to come, the Messiah, the Savior. Are you the one who's to come, or, or, or did I get it wrong? Did I make a mistake? Should we be looking for another? Are you just a kind of preliminary and the saviour is still yet to come? 
John the Baptist is in problems. When he's in prison, he's in problems. He's in problems with his own message. He's preached, he's preached that, that Jesus is, is the Messiah. But now he's saying, well, are you the one to come? Or should we look for another? What is John's problem? Well, John's problem is that there's no sign whatsoever of triumph and of victory. John, John's in prison. He's about to lose his life. He's been predicting that a saviour will come and will baptise sin with fire and deal with, 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 with the wicked and bring in righteousness. There's no sign of it happening. Jesus is, is nobody special in the eyes of the hierarchy. And uh, John himself is in prison. He looks as though he's going to lose his life at any moment. And so is, is Jesus really the king? What's, what's is John's problem is that salvation is coming, but not judgment. Jesus is coming, preaching the poor. Jesus sends a message back to John. Go and tell John, the deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, all the signs of the kingdom are here, and the poor are having good news preached to them. It's that point in the kingdom. It's not the point of judgment. It's the point of good news going to the poor. So so the judgment side has not yet come. The kingdom unfolds in stages. That's why... Jesus can say, the kingdom is at hand. It's starting, I'm coming, I'm arriving, I'm beginning this, this program of the unfolding of God's kingdom. It's here now. But, but the kingdom's got stages to it, as, as we shall see in a moment. And then, that's the key, we'll close in this session in a few moments, that's the key to, John, to Luke 4. Have you ever pondered this in Luke 4? Jesus goes to, to, to Nazareth, and uh, it's the early phase of his ministry. He's allowed, he's still preaching in the synagogues at the moment. And um, he goes to the synagogue. He opens the prophecy of Isaiah. He's, he's asked to speak. and he, op- he opens the book of Isaiah and he starts reading it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back, which you could read that without seeing its significance. He is stopping in the middle of a sentence. Isaiah says to bring in the day of the Lord's favour and the judgment of our God. Jesus doesn't read the end of the sentence. He says to bring in the Lord's favour and then rolls up the book and gives it back without finishing the sentence. You see, the day of grace has come but not the day of judgment. He stops in the middle of a sentence. In Isaiah, it's a panorama. In Isaiah, it's everything that's going to happen, salvation and judgment, but the salvation comes before the judgment. And Jesus stops in the middle of the sentence and rolls up the scroll, closes the book, and gives it back. In other words, he's saying, the next bit's not coming just yet. He stops mid-sentence, conspicuously rolls up the scroll, (coughs) and gives it back to the superintendents. The day of grace has come, but not the day of judgment. So the kingdom of God has phases to it, and that's where we will pick up in the next session.